Good evening, everyone. This is Raising Our Voices, and today we'll be talking about acquired brain injuries or ABIs. We'll begin today's show by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we are recording today and pay our respects to the elders past and present. And we also pay our respects to First Nations people listening to our show. We also recognise the self-advocates who have worked tirelessly over the years for their rights to equality and human rights for all. Hello everyone and welcome to another Raising Our Voices show on 3CR, 8.55am. We are a self-advocacy radio show run by people with a disability about people with a disability. Nothing about us without us. I'm Lisa. This episode today is about the complexities of living with an acquired brain injury, but from people who actually live with it. Today you're going to meet three people with an ABI, but the diversity of ABI is much bigger than that. Larissa? Hi, thanks for having me as a guest. I am on the unceded lands of the Bonnaroo people. I identify as a proud, disabled and queer person. I am the proud owner of a 24-year-old brain injury. For the past two decades, I've been involved in self-advocacy and in disability arts. I am also an artist slash activist, and part of my practice is working both alone and with other disabled people to make street art about disability pride. And I'm going to hand over to Julie now to introduce yourself. Good evening, everyone. My name is Julie Skibiris, and I am from a Maltese background, otherwise known as cold in the tech sector. I have been working in the sector for over 10 years now, and uh, I suppose the sector and myself found each other after um, a very severe illness. My actual ABI occurred when I was six months old through an infection as a as a baby so I just I really don't have a before and after story so and each story is unique so uh, yeah so uh, I'd like to acknowledge all people who have had a ABI through infection and illness as a child and are living their life in the best way that they can My name's Lisa. I acquired my brain injury about 17 years ago in Greece. I was going on a holiday to meet a friend in Santorini. I never got there. That pretty much says it all. (laughs) Anyway, before we begin today, I want to tell the listeners that today's chat will be talking about ableism and discrimination, just so you can all be aware and I would like to add to that today we, you may find um, because we're people with ABI and sometimes we talk a lot, so we may interrupt each other and we're not doing this out of disrespect for each other but because we, we've already discussed this. So don't be offended. <laughs> quite right, Larissa, quite right. <laughs> we'll be critiquing the medical model and inspiration porn as well as the charity model and the word vulnerable 
And we have to say there's diversity in humanity generally, but then there's an even bigger diversity in ABI because we're part of humanity. Like Rolampa guys, we are. We, uh, we know each other, the three of us, although we work in very different areas. But uh, one of the things that often comes up for people with ABI and that we've talked about at times in our journey has been the, the way that our stories are often stereotyped as tragedy and inspiration. So that uh, when people learn that we have a brain injury, people want to know about how we got our brain injury and it's often portrayed as this tragedy um, which on the other end of it as a person with brain injury and disability that makes me feel pretty shit to be the subject of the tragedy and uh, because my life is not all tragedy I am acknowledging that brain injury can be bloody hard to live with but there are also for myself many gifts that have come from acquiring a brain injury. You're very right, Larissa. I mean, for me, my experience just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. There's nothing tragic about that. It's just just at the wrong place at the wrong time. And I feel like that's sort of, that's what it means to be human. It is. is From, From what I can understand, unless there's another form of humanity somewhere out there that we're not aware of. Yeah, because being human means that all sorts of things unexpected happen to us all the time. Nothing is a given. Yeah, anything can happen. And so for us, we happen to be in a space where we had a brain injury. And Julie, how does that feel for you? I thank you for including me, everyone, in the conversation. So I'd like to say a little bit about the charity model. Piss on pity. Having been born and raised in a cold environment where there were strict uh, gender roles and then, you know, uh, myself having different skills, abilities, having to deal with physical issues because um, my parents had very limited uh, time, number one, and also uh, English skills, which made it really difficult for them. So I was sort of like seen in the family environment and in the uh, community as a charity model, and it really, it really cheesed me off like immensely. So I worked quite tirelessly on myself for uh, still working on myself because working on yourself never stops. But from the ages of very young to, uh, say, 30-ish, I had to figure out my physical issues and find alternative ways of therapy because I am not a charity case. I'm a strong woman uh, who has done everything everyone else has done in the family, plus more, under quite a bit of duress. So I piss on pity. Absolutely. And good on you, Julie. Yeah, Piss on Pity, for those who don't know, is um, it's it's a disability rights slogan that's been around a couple of decades at least and, yeah, very much is a way of challenging 
that charity model that says that we should be grateful for anything we receive. And of course, you know, we're human beings. Yes, we have disability, but we have the same, we deserve the same human rights as all human beings. And so, yeah, over the years, people have critiqued the charity model and come up with that slogan that says, piss on pity. And quite right. Yeah. Would you like me to challenge the medical model? (laughs) Yeah, why not? Let's do that, Lara. Yeah. The medical model of disability is like the, um, it's sort of the dominant way of thinking about disability in wider society. And it says that people with disability have something wrong with their bodies or their brains or their minds and that these things that are wrong are a problem and that they need to be fixed or managed or cured. And then there's also an overlay that if you don't get better or improve from what's wrong with you, that somehow you haven't worked hard enough. So the problem is always lies within the individual. And as um, we all here reject that medical model, we think it's old-fashioned and it should be thrown out. And instead we subscribe to the social model of disability which um, the social model says that we're all humans, we're all just on a spectrum of bodies and minds and abilities and that the barriers that we face are actually located in society and they're things like the attitudes towards us as well as physical barriers like stairs if you're in a, you use a wheelchair. Um, all those barriers that prevent disabled people from accessing education and employment they are actually the disability. So the disability isn't located in our bodies. Anyway, before I keep going on, um, I want to say that I that my brain injury has brought me a new unique brain that whilst is still difficult to live with, I believe has brought many things to society that are of great benefit. And that's amazing. It is. Um, And it's really good that you acknowledge that as well. Yeah. At the heart of the social model is also understanding that we're we're addressing the ableism in society and including the ableism within ourselves that prevents us from being proud of ourselves. And so every day I try to work towards undoing or dismissing that shame that society has put upon me and instead trying to practice being proud of my life and my resistance to ableism and also my disability culture and my brain injury culture. And more power to you. And on that note, could you please tell us a little bit about what's meant by inspiration porn? Oh, yes, I'd love to. Lots of people with disability find themselves being told they're inspirational just for getting out of bed or going to the shops or doing something when in actual fact, you know, we're just doing what everybody else does and we haven't really, you know, done anything to, to deserve that really. But it's a sort of a, um, a thing that it's part of that medical model and that charity model and seeing us as a tragedy and so that when we do something like going to the shops, we get told we're inspirational and, well, I say piss on inspiration in that context But I'd like to say that this idea that challenging that disabled people are these objects of inspiration 
has actually was actually coined in Australia. It's known around the world now, but it was actually Stella Young, uh, who who was a quite famous comedian and radio presenter, and she did lots of different things. But she did a TED talk, which was really good, which coined this idea of disabled people being the object of inspiration porn. Anyway, moving on. Thanks, Larissa. Thanks for that. We'll go to a song called Choices and Rights by Johnny Crescendo. I want choices and rights. Larissa on 
Raising Our Voices. And thanks to Johnny Crescendo for that song, Choices and Rights. I chose that song, or I chose the artist really, because Johnny Crescendo is a UK-based musician, but it's actually the alter ego of Alan Holdsworth. And he was a famous disability rights activist. He still is, actually. And recently there's a film that's been made called When Barbara Met Alan. And it's on Netflix. I haven't seen it yet, but it's just got launched like in the last couple of weeks and I'm very excited to see it. There you go. Back to you, Lisa. Thanks, Larissa. You're listening to Raising Our Voices on 3CR 855am, on 3CR Digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Raising Our Voices is a radio show run by people with a disability about people with a disability. Nothing about us without us. To recap, today we're talking about brain injury, what it's like to live with one, and everything about that actually. Living with a brain injury can be difficult in many ways. Being a self-advocate as well can be difficult in many ways. Let's talk about the difficulties of both of them. But can we begin with living the isolation we experience. Lara, help? Um, yeah, that's a, a really, really important part of what happens when you acquire a brain injury is the isolation. And this is because, well, society doesn't include us and sees us as scary or problematic, I suppose. Some of us end up in nursing homes, I can't remember the stats, but there's a lot of people with young people with brain injury under the age of 65 who are living in nursing homes. Or we just end up or in group homes and there aren't a lot of spaces for us to connect. We're often very confused. And I think isolation is one of the biggest issues that people with brain injury live with. What do you uh, think, Jules? Well, I have another perspective of isolation as a lot of people may be aware, Maltese uh, families in general have lots of children. And I found that I still felt isolated, even though I was surrounded by lots of people. And the reason for that, I believe, is because I couldn't physically cope so I had to find other ways to um, entertain myself, other ways to um, to reach my goals because some of the uh, traditional ways uh, didn't suit me. And so I had to uh, basically isolate myself and figure out ways around things I wanted to do and now I am physically isolated from the majority of my family for a lot of reasons and yeah during the recent COVID debacle I found that really difficult at times yeah so I still had people checking on me but primarily I was on my own uh, when when faced with uh, illness, I do feel alone. Yeah, so that's another aspect I'd like to highlight. 
Yes, it is. And I think that we're isolated. But I believe that as a social group, we tend to be isolated as well in that as a social group, we kind of pretty much move with other people with a brain injury because they seem to understand better what we're going through. What do you guys think? Are you talking about uh, when we come together yeah, as peers? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's really powerful. Mm. And we know that um, there's been stats around statistics that have been studies that have been done about how how long often people with brain injury spend years thinking they're the only one and never meeting anyone else with a brain injury. And when they do, I guess over 24 years, I keep meeting people who, you know, had a brain injury for 10 years and then suddenly they find other people and it's a bit mind-blowing. It's it's amazing to connect with other people and realise that, that you're not alone and that it isn't your fault, it isn't because you haven't tried hard enough. I think, you know, sometimes we end up doing a lot of rehab and and the whole rehabilitation is, is very medical model orientated and so when we fail to necessarily learn how to speak again or, or read or walk in a straight line, then we feel as if it's our fault and we haven't tried enough. But when you meet other people with brain injury, you realise that actually we're all really trying hard and I feel lucky because I met other people with brain injury quite early on and and so only a couple of years into my brain injury and I have spent a lot of my sort of activism over the years trying to encourage people to come together or creating spaces where people with ABI can connect because I think isolation is a killer. I, w- I would agree with you definitely on that. Yeah. I mean, literally it is because people end their lives mm. um, but it also destroys lives because mm. you can be miserable and for me personally, and I think this would be the same for lots of people, but when I'm isolated from people, as we have been through COVID, it's particularly if we're living alone, which I know the three of us are, is that I started, I wasn't connected with people as much and I started blaming myself for not being able to do things. Whereas before COVID, when I connected with people, I was more able to recognise the barriers in society was preventing me from, say, accessing, I don't know, employment. But when I was all alone, I started thinking it was all my own fault because, you know, I don't have a CV and therefore it's my fault. I still don't have a CV, by the way. So Um, it's still your fault. (laughs) No, it's not. I think the the issue is, is greater than that it's not just because i haven't tried hard enough because you know me i i try hard at everything i know and i was only joking i don't believe it's your fault (laughs) but that's an example that just popped into my head um but i think when we're isolated we forget that the barriers in society that prevent people with abi and other disabled people from our basic civic rights Mm. We forget those barriers and we start to blame ourselves. That's the medical model. They want us to blame ourselves so that we don't, <laughs> you know, make a voice and, you know, start speaking up. Um, can I can I weigh in on, on some things, please? Yeah. Please do. Feel please. free. So um, 
I do agree that with people with disabilities need to meet others with the same disability because it'll like give us it's like finding your own tribe as our, our brothers and sisters of the First Nation would would put it possibly. Um, I don't know, but, but I'm thinking that way. But also, it doesn't mean you have to socialise with uh, your own tribe, like every social event. I mean, there's, you know, you can, you can go out into the world and meet other people, uh, you know, other people that you like to socialise with. So, yes, I do acknowledge it is important, but also to get out there and to meet all sorts of people. Great point. Thank you. I, I Can I add to that that I think it's really important, it was really important for me in my growing and learning to live with my brain injury was meeting other disabled people who didn't necessarily have brain injury but I have learned so much from other disabled people but of course it would be awesome for me for all of us to be able to have full access to society so we could meet other people but to meet non-disabled people but unfortunately that isn't as easy as it sounds because of the barriers no, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's not as easy as it sounds. But it's not that hard either. And I think one of the barriers is that other people or able-bodied people think of us as something other, other than human beings, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's a big barrier. Mm. Because people are sort of somehow afraid of us and... They can be unwilling to make accommodations to include us. I agree, but I really don't understand why the fear. Well, I think it's the medical model. This medical model has brainwashed our brains, everyone's brains, and it teaches us that disability is bad. Disability is a problem and it's wrong. So I think that all of us and non-disabled people are we're less afraid of disability because we have it but um, or we live with it. But I think non-disabled people feel like, you know, they might catch it if they talk to us or it's sort of they have to think about it. And because the messaging, the brainwashing is that disability is bad, they want to stay away from us. So as uh, you ladies know, that we work with a lot of disabled people uh, of different types of disabilities. And what I've sort of like recognised within myself and with others in the, in the sector that are professionals is that there seems to be this need to prove ourselves when we, when we meet uh, new people. And, you know, it happens in hospital settings. It happens if we're socialising. And it's actually quite tiring. Yes, so it's a bit of a drain on us to constantly... Um, and we may not even know we're doing it, quite honestly. So we, you know, constantly prove our worth uh, to be in their social scene. 
I know I do it at times when I meet different people. I see it happening in the sector also, just by the stories people tell when they're out and about in a community. Yeah, I feel you on that, Julie, for sure, that I do. I feel like I need to prove myself and it is exhausting. And I think that's why a lot of people who have more invisible disability tend to hide and not disclose because then they don't have to go through that exhaustion of of trying to prove that they're still worthy. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this. It's it's so it's so dehumanizing. I mean it's but that's that is what we live with, really. It is. It's very and very social. How do you mean, Lisa? Like everybody believes it. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people believe it. Yeah. I guess that's why it goes back to, I think, you know, the brainwashing that happens from the medical model. And I suppose that's why I'm so committed to talking about the social model of disability and talking about disability pride and talking about ableism and using disability language as well, calling myself disabled. I'm pointing there that I'm reclaiming language that has previously, you know, been a slur or been a negative, and I'm using it proudly to show that disability is not a bad thing because I think when people start to understand that, and there are people that do understand. We do know there's lots of non-disabled people in our lives who get it, and I feel like, well, that's what I do anyway. I just keep talking about it, making art and putting it on the streets, hoping that the message will sink in. So we're coming up to time. Lisa, you should have the final words, I think. I don't know what to say after all of that. I I would agree with you definitely and that we need to concentrate more more on the social model. I would like to say one thing. Yeah, please. If we have any people listening who have an ABI and who want to share their story because no doubt they will have experienced some form of discrimination and and ableism, that the Disability Royal Commission is still accepting stories uh, or your story and if you wanted to share your experience, that is still open until the end of the year and this is a really good chance to have your say. Excellent. Thank you, Larissa. Thanks for having me on the program and just to let people know, you can give your stories to the Royal Commission anonymously And uh, I'll see you around next program. Thank you very much. Thanks, Julie. Yeah, thanks very much for having me back on Raising Our Voices. It's great to be back here with 3CR and chatting with other awesome disabled people. Thank you very much. And thanks for listening to Raising Our Voices on 3CR, 8.55am. And join us next month. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.